0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune from the Fergus Square Group. And with me, as always, is my favorite colleague, Chris Werling out of the Chicago office. Hello. Hi, Brian. We're coming off an amazingly busy summer. I, I think it was for you as well, yeah?
1: It was uh, very strange this summer. Typically, there's a little bit of an August lull, and, and that didn't happen this year. <laughs> so no. I'm, I usually wait for everyone in New York to go to the hand for a few weeks and relax a bit. But summer continued apace with healthcare
0: investments. Yeah, that's right. August and our end, uh, I think, did not slow down at all. And we're heading into a very busy fall. Thanks everybody for joining us once again. This week, our topic is going to be home care and particularly home care under Medicaid in a number of states. This week, we have some special guests who will be uh, walking through interviews with our additional very smart guests. So I will be turning this over to Jackie Williams, Fergus Squares. Director of Research, as well as Hope Amsterdam, who is also a subject matter expert on post-acute and home health in our DC office. And they will be interviewing Damon Trezaghi who has been very active with the National Association of States United for Aging and Disabilities, which is, of course, very, very active in tracking what's going on in the states in home care and under Medicaid. So I want to thank everybody in advance for joining us today. Then Chris and I are going to turn this call over to Jackie Williams to kick us off.
2: Home and Community community-based services providers have gained investor attention recently, driven by federal support through the American Rescue Plan Act and the House Pass Build Back Better. And while Medicaid is the largest payer of HCBS, this federal support has drawn private equity attention. To discuss the benefits of HCBS, enrollment, workforce challenges, as well as federal support, we're pleased to feature Damon Terzaghi, Senior Director of LTSS Policy at Advancing States an association that represents the nation's 56 state and territorial agencies on aging and disabilities and long-term services and supports directors. In his role, Damon is responsible for leading Advancing States policy work, including analyzing federal and state legislation and regulations and researching national trends around long-term services and supports. Prior to joining Advancing States, Damon led the Medicaid research practice at the Marwood Group, and served as a health insurance specialist for CMS. Thanks for joining us today, Damon. Can you give an overview of your role and what your daily interactions are like in the HCBS space?
3: Absolutely. As you mentioned, our association represents the state government agencies that finance and create policy for these services. So we spend the bulk of our time working on HCBS-related issues. That includes working with Congress to advance state priorities, As it relates to aging and disability services with an emphasis on HCBS, as well as working with the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Administration for Community Living being the two most important partners in this work. But other areas of the federal government get involved in HCBS fairly frequently as well. Lastly, I spend a lot of my time working directly with the states to help them design their programs, make sure that they're in compliance with federal law and Regulations and also help them define what their goals are and work towards achieving them.
2: And we've seen an increase in demand for HCBS services since the start of the pandemic. Can you take us through that timeline and the flexibilities that were awarded for HCBS at the start of the pandemic?
3: A point I would like to make is that there was an increased demand for home and community based services and a trend that was already well underway before the pandemic hit. The COVID 19 pandemic really accelerated that existing trajectory in services. One of the things that I really like to point out when we talk about this issue Is that institutional congregate long term care settings really were ground zero for the COVID pandemic? When you think about where the first real public outbreak happened that was identified, it was a long term care facility in Washington state. We've talked to some of our members, particularly those in the Northeast that were hit very hard at the beginning of the pandemic. And in some places, nearly 10% of their institutional population died of COVID-19. So it was a very trying time and a very stressful time for those individuals and their family members who lived in an institutional setting. Because of this, we saw an even greater emphasis on moving people out of those congregate settings and into a more home-based environment where there was a little bit more control over visitors and who the individual interacted with, what family members or supports they received uh, throughout the day. I think that when you look at the flexibility states were provided, they really run the gamut. States used what we call an Appendix K, which is a way to modify an existing home and community based services program to do a variety of things across the country. We saw proposals and policies that increased provider wages to try and retain or attract more service providers in these programs. We saw hero pay and other sorts of bonuses to reward those individuals who continued to provide services throughout this trying period. We saw a lot of states increase the number of individuals who qualify for home and community based services. As you may know, home and community based services are a little bit of an anomaly in the Medicaid program insofar as they're not an entitlement and states can cap the number of enrollees and create waiting lists for these services. So many states increased the number of available slots and reduced the waiting lists for services. We also saw states look at providing more flexibility in how these services are delivered and who can deliver them. For example, states in many cases allowed family members to become paid service providers in a way that wasn't allowed before in those particular states. This is something that has been allowed in Medicaid, but has varied uptake over the years. When states expanded the available providers, they really looked at what is a workforce we can tap into that would be able to provide these services and not necessarily have the same challenges associated with someone coming in from the outside into an individual's home and potentially bringing an infectious disease or going from setting to setting, which would increase the likeliness of transmission. So we did see a lot of states think about the various ways they could modify their programs, expand access, create financial incentives, and also provide more opportunity for new types of providers and and new ways of delivering services throughout their programs.
2: Great. Well, thank you for that thorough response. You know, we've certainly seen the shift in patient demand from facilities to favoring skilled care and and home care. And that's something that we've been tracking. And as you stated, it was exacerbated by the pandemic. So this continued shift of care preferences, is that something that you expect to see continue post the PHE? We absolutely do. There's a couple of reasons for that.
3: First of all, as I mentioned, this is a trend that has been ongoing for several decades now. If you look at some of the data and the research that CMS puts out on a regular basis, there is a steady trend line up of the proportion of Medicaid expenditures for long term care that are community based, and a steady trend line down of the proportion of Medicaid expenditures that are institutionally based. Like I said, the pandemic exacerbated and accelerated this trend. And we also think that it will continue to go in that direction post-pandemic. One point I really want to make is that when CMS puts out these figures in aggregate, they like to highlight the point that for about the past seven or eight years, Medicaid now spends more money in the community than they do in institutional settings. However, when you start to break down the different populations that are in long-term care, there's a lot of variation that I think sometimes gets missed. For example, for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, upwards of 80% of national spending is in community-based settings for their long-term care services and supports. In contrast, For older adults and people with physical disabilities, the majority of Medicaid expenditures, I believe approximately 60%, remain in those institutional and facility-based settings. So while we have seen that broad trend line occur across the Medicaid program, there are areas where there remains an institutional service component that states are still looking at focusing on what we call rebalancing, making it more equitable between community and facility-based services. If we think back to the beginning of this conversation, older adults especially, and also people with disabilities, were the most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And of those individuals, those in facility-based settings were even more impacted. Because of this, that little subset where we have 60%, give or take, of expenditures in institutional settings is likely to see ongoing rebalancing and more and more proportion of that in community-based settings for Medicaid-funded care.
4: Thanks, Damon. This is Hope here. You and I have discussed this next topic at length privately, but I think our audience would also appreciate the conversation. HCBS services were given a 10% increase in response to the pandemic through the American Rescue Plan. Can you briefly explain what this increase is and why it has been vital to HCBS services? Absolutely.
3: For those of you who aren't familiar with the mechanizations of the Medicaid program, when states and the federal government run a program jointly, the federal government pays a defined portion of Medicaid expenses. We call this the FMAP, and it's based on a statutory formula. What the Rescue Plan Act did was it said for home and community-based services, that FMAP calculation is increased by 10 percentage points. So it's a pretty significant amount of money. When you look at CBO score, they anticipated it would be about $13 billion of additional federal funding based upon what states generally spend on their home and community-based services. That's a, a lot of money. And what we've seen happen is that states have actually been able to leverage that increased FMAP to draw down even more federal funding on top of the 10% increase. There's a very complicated calculation and way that the money flows that makes this legally possible. But I'll just say it allows the states to leverage even more additional funding on top of that 10%. So when we went through, we looked at all of the different things that states proposed doing with this money. It's more than $12 billion in spending. Our calculations had it around $25 to $30 billion of state and federal spending above the baseline. Now, what happened in Congress, I think, is a little bit important because it plays into what's happening now and what the potential future of this increase and the way it's used is. Congress originally put out a bill in the House That had a very, very long and extensive list of what services qualified for this increase, what states could do with it, what they were expected to do with it, and so on and so forth. That passed the House. However, as you may recall, the Rescue Plan Act was enacted through the reconciliation process in the Senate. And the Senate has some rules about what can and can't be included in a reconciliation bill. And the long story short is that the Senate parliamentarian, based on those rules, stripped out most of the policy requirements for this funding. And it essentially ended up with language that said states get a 10% increase for their home and community-based services. They have to supplement and not supplant existing state funding, which CMS interpreted to basically mean that the states can't cut other Medicaid, home and community-based services funding based on the increased federal funding. And then it said states must spend this money to strengthen their home and community-based services system. That is a very broad and vague language, which essentially ended up with CMS saying there's not much statutory guidance around this. You states must tell us and propose to us what you are going to spend this money on. States then submitted what we call the ARPA spending plans, which are comprehensive documents that outline all of their proposed activities, the timelines, the amount of money that they're going to spend on those initiatives. And then CMS ultimately approved those spending plans, which allowed the initiatives to begin. This is an extremely important part of the HCBS world right now, I think for obvious reasons, but I will say there is not a day that goes by that I'm not talking to at least two or three states about this issue, about their initiatives underlying the ARPA spending plans, and about what the best ways to get impact and outcomes are, and how to plan for the future when this funding likely will be exhausted. Some of the things that we've seen states do with this money, I think are extremely important. They may be with some of the things I talked about earlier, but I would say on a more comprehensive basis because there's a lot more funding available. Things like drawing down waiver slots opening up the home and community-based services to more people, increasing provider rates, adding new services, or expanding the, the scope or the limitations on existing services. Those are some of the core ones. We've also seen a lot of initiatives around provider training and certification processes, information technology, development and implementation, Things like electronic health records in the LTSS space, the home and community-based services space, which have really lagged behind the primary and acute care space things like ongoing IT system investments that support the health and safety of individuals in home and community-based settings. There's a wide range of proposals and a lot of very, very interesting things that are being done around the country. I would encourage those of you listening to go to our website at advancingstates.org. And we have a document we published last year in September That goes through all of the 50 states and the District of Columbia and categorizes all of their activities to show what the trends are and what the most common areas of investment are. Then it goes through state by state and says, this is what this state is doing within those broad categories. So if you take a look at that, it gives you a much, much more detailed and specific look at what's happening around the country under these spending initiatives in aggregate across the country. I would really think of it in a couple of different spaces. First being expanded access for participants. Second being increased payments for providers. And then third being those service expansions.
4: Thanks, and That was a very thorough answer. We know, as you just described, that states have really expanded not only services that they're providing using ARPA funds, but also increases to providers for services through ARPA. Do you expect these increases that providers are ex- experiencing to continue past 2025?
3: I think it's a very good question, and I'm not really sure there's a good answer across the country for exactly how much of this payment increase we would anticipate extending beyond 2025. Some states specifically structured their payments in a way that did not obligate them to ongoing payment increases. We saw a lot of states do initiatives like one-time provider bonuses that were very specifically constructed in a way that was, this is a lump sum payment, you get it, maybe we'll do another lump sum payment in the future, but this is not a rate increase and it is specifically not a rate increase. Other states did enact rate increases, but in their spending plan, they put an expectation that those rate increases would sunset when the funding has been exhausted. Other states increased the rates and said, we will be exploring and developing sustainability plans to secure ongoing financing for these with a little asterisk underneath saying, in the event that we cannot secure that additional funding, these payment increases will go away. Then lastly, we did see a few states that were very clear that they're using this funding to increase provider rates as a part of their strategy to permanently increase the provider rates. My organization, with some of our partners, did a what we call learning collaborative affinity group that brought about... 13 or 14 states together to discuss their strategies for increasing provider payments, looking at how that impacted the availability of services, as well as the retention of workers, and then also looking at strategies to sustain these increases. Um, We did a quick survey of the participating states, and most of them were a little bit ambiguous on whether or not they would be able to maintain those rates. A couple of them said, absolutely. A couple of them said, we have no clue. And most of them said, it's very much contingent upon the state of the economy and the state revenues moving forward. I raise that because we all know over the past couple of months, economic news has not been great and the forecasts have not been necessarily rosy. And I do think that that is something to consider when you take into account whether or not states are going to be able to maintain these increases when the federal funding is exhausted.
4: Another aspect that we explore a lot in the home and community-based services industry, as well as other healthcare sectors, has been labor. And labor has been a true pressure point in the home and community-based services industry. Are you seeing any innovative strategies for managing staffing and labor supply shortages? I
3: will say first and foremost, this is the number one issue across the country. There is not a day that goes by that we don't talk to multiple states about the workforce shortage and strategies to retain and recruit additional workers. When we look at the spending in these HCBS spending plans I've been talking about. CMS put out a little summary, and according to their calculations, there's nearly $10 billion of this funding allocated towards spending on the provider workforce. Now, there are a lot of different strategies that states are using. I mentioned earlier the expansion of allowable provider types, such as family members being paid providers. I think that that has been a extremely common strategy and one that I anticipate will continue. We've seen some other interesting initiatives. For example, the state of Minnesota put out an RFP seeking applicants to assist with the creation of Individual worker owned and operated provider agencies. So essentially allowing those direct care workers themselves to form their own employee led provider agency. We saw states that were putting out grants to their providers to essentially say, We want to see your best ideas, your creative solutions to attracting new workers. So we're going to give you, quote unquote, innovation grants that would allow those providers to experiment with new ways to recruit, retain, and attract staff. I think that from my perspective, I don't know if there's anything that's truly earth-shattering or groundbreaking in this area. With that said, I think that this is an area where states are essentially saying anything and everything we can possibly do to address this issue, we're willing to give it a try. So they're ripe for ideas. I think the easy one is increasing provider rates. And the more challenging one is looking at How does that increased provider rate actually trickle down to the worker through forms of wages or increased benefits or whatever else? And then also, how does that actually impact the workforce in terms of recruitment and retention? It's a very hard, complicated question, and it's not something that I think a lot of states have really figured out. I've worked with some states who put in requirements that specifically said, if we give providers this additional money, they have to attest that the money will be given directly to the worker. I've worked with other states that have just increased their HCBS provider rates and told the providers to go forth and do good with it in the hopes that it would impact capacity and, and workforce issues. Another thing that I have seen that is increasing in is states trying to engage with the education system earlier. Some states had initiatives in their spending plans to work directly with high schools on apprenticeship programs or other sorts of transitional after you graduate high school, you can go into a home care job, not necessarily as an ongoing permanent career, but as a way to gain experience and start to get some real world working history in the uh, health and long-term services space. A number of states are really trying to build out, that pipeline, we call them career ladders, where individuals who enter into a home care job have a very defined career path where they can go into, for example, like a certified nursing aide or home uh, home health provider or something like that, where it doesn't just become your personal care provider, and then when you decide you want a better job, you leave the field completely. Those are some of the things that we've seen. But like I said, it's very much right now a we're going to throw everything out there we can possibly think of, see what works, see what doesn't work, and hopefully move the needle.
4: Thanks. So circling back on, on what you just said, and you did talk a little bit about this, can we anticipate proactive action from Medicaid programs to raise reimbursement rates? so agencies can attract
3: staff. In many cases we've seen that. I think it is hard to say how much of this will be sustainable on an ongoing basis. One of the things that I always look at in these types of initiatives is what are states doing in terms of how they structure their payments. Are they looking at this is just a one-off payment type thing or Are they doing a more comprehensive rate study looking at the underlying components that form the basis for their payment rates that then is used to justify an ongoing payment increase to CMS? People forget that when you make a rate increase in the HCBS world, just like the rest of Medicaid, but especially in HCBS, you do have to have some sort of a way of justifying what that payment is. Sometimes you can do just a quick little 5% increase and CMS won't ask for any more documentation, but we are seeing CMS really push back on states and saying, we definitely believe you need to increase provider rates. Show us why this new rate you're proposing is actually justified and is actually sufficient to achieve the goals say you say you're planning to achieve. If you look around the country, I believe the last time I looked, it was about 25 states had proposed doing those rate studies. I think our hope and the hope of the states is that doing those rate studies will both allow them to justify a new payment reimbursement structure to CMS and also make the case to the state legislatures, the government that is allocating this type of funding to say, look, we have this temporary funding we're spending, and we're also doing an ongoing analysis that says we need to maintain this on an ongoing basis. You're right, states are flush with cash right now due to a lot of the pandemic-related federal spending that has flowed through state governments in a variety of different programs. However, As I mentioned earlier, there are some potential dark clouds on the economic horizon that I know are creating some consternation among states about putting too much future spending into their current programs.
2: Thank you, Damon, for sharing your expertise with our clients today. It's been wonderful having you, and I hope you'll join us again. And I want to thank the audience for joining us. As you know, Washington is always busy in the fall, and this year is certainly no different. We'll be keeping our clients updated regularly on the midterm elections and legislative and regulatory activities impacting healthcare through notes, webinars, and podcasts.
0: Thank you, everybody. Jackie, Hope, Damon, that was uh, an excellent overview of what's been going on in the home care space. Uh, We appreciate everybody participating today. And I want to thank everybody for listening in once again. You know, as Chris and I say goodbye, we're going to talk about some exciting new things to it will be coming up on our end, particularly our healthcare private equity focused event in
1: New York. That's right, Brian. We're going to be in New York for Health Private Equity New York on Friday, October 21st. Uh, It's at the Lotte New York Palace Hotel. And this year got some fantastic panels. Value-based care is something that's on everyone's mind. So we have a great panel on value-based care that will feature Darren Black from Summit Partners. We have a great panel on digital health that's going to dig into the balance between healthcare innovation and regulations. And we have the typical panels chock full of really smart investment bankers that are active in health private equity. uh, And of course, investors from across the spectrum of private equity investors. So visit our McDermott website, at uh, www.mwe.com, and you'll find more information about and how to register for HPE New York 2022. You no, know, a lot of people will be in New York that week. Kane Brothers has their annual conference, and the day before, our HPE event, McDermott will be hosting our Hospital and Health System Innovation Summit. Uh, that's going to be on Thursday, October 20th. We'll feature a ton of interesting panels around how large health systems are transforming the delivery of healthcare in the United States. I think one of the more interesting panels, particularly for our listener base, will be on the topic of, you know, how to collaborate with private equity-backed service line managers. So private equity, obviously, as we've discussed on this podcast, has been very active and urgent care, physical therapy, home health, and for decades has been investors in surgery centers. And these are all service lines that some health systems are providing and are increasingly doing that in collaboration with private equity-backed platforms. So one of the more interesting panels there, I think, will be on how to structure those collaborations, what are some of the nuances to achieve strategic alignment, maximize the benefit for all of the parties. We'll, of course, be talking about value-based care arrangements there as well and do a case study on a variety of joint ventures. And we can't have a conference without speaking about digital health and how that's impacting health systems. So big we in New York City. We hope you'll join us both for HPE New York and our Hospital and Health System Innovation Summit. If we don't see you there, we'll see you at the Kane Brothers event. Right,
0: Brian? All Right. Yeah. Uh, No, it's going to be a a great week. So looking forward to seeing everybody. Uh, Thanks again, everybody. We will see you very, very soon. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one
3: should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior
2: written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.